Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital Podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple. Supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Good day. Thanks for joining me on Offshoot. Lauren Polger is my guest today. He's a co-founder and senior managing director of Pathfinder Partners. Happy to say the podcast is starting to feel a bit more natural, and I hope you enjoy our exchange. Lauren shares quite a few nuggets of wisdom and insight with us. Uh, One thing that you'll hear several times is how relationships are very central to all that he and Pathfinder do. He also touches on some guiding principles, such as creating alignment between investors and the operator, investing in your people, being transparent, and acting for investors as you would for yourself. In the topic of distress, uh, he and I agree it's still coming as a result of COVID-19 2021. We should see some capitulation across several sectors, in particular hotel and retail. Adaptive reuse of hotel could be very interesting, and he sees opportunities to buy for less than 100 cents on the dollar with really cheap multifamily debt uh, being a great recipe for long-term hold. We talk also around building an advisory board, something that Lauren credits as a central tenet of the success of Pathfinder Partners. I think that the insights there are really valuable. I hope you enjoy that. And at the end, he's got a couple tips for the entrepreneurs out there. Maybe you're starting up, maybe you're in the depths of dark days, but uh, in any event, I hope you enjoy the exchange. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Lauren Polger, co-founder and senior managing director of Procopio, sorry, of Pathfinder Partners. After more than 20 years practicing real estate and environmental law at Procopio, a San Diego law firm, and just as the Great Recession began, Lauren and his partner, Mitch Siegler, had the vision and the guts to leap into the operator role. Pathfinder is a vertically integrated real estate company whose funds deploy investor capital directly into Pathfinder's projects, avoiding the double promotes associated with traditional equity funds. They play on the value-add and opportunistic side of the risk spectrum and tend to pursue smaller transactions than the largest real estate funds, though by no means are the deals small. The firm is raising their sixth fund and has gone full cycle on around 70 projects and has acquired about 110 assets. The combined value of the transactions falls right around $1 billion. Their investors, I suspect, are quite pleased with having received a 21% net IRR. The funds target secondary markets in the western states of California, Arizona, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Nevada. Lauren and the Pathfinder team are super sharp. As market conditions have changed over the last 14 years, I've watched them redirect the platform from distressed deals to value-add deals in pursuit of attractive returns. 
Once they set an investment thesis, I've seen very little style drift, a high degree of discipline, and top-flight execution. Prior to earning a law degree from UCLA, Lauren graduated from Colorado College with a degree in poli-sci. I don't know if that's when he really fell in love with skiing or if it came before the college years. What I do know is that he's been skiing since age five, and just like me, might drop a few meetings in favor of chasing a good storm. So, Lauren, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Kevin. Great to be here, and uh, appreciate you uh, including me in this uh, this uh, new journey of yours. And uh, fun to uh, fun to be with you. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Um, so, to start, could you just tell us about uh, yourself, a bit about yourself, and, and Pathfinder? Sure. Well, I'll update you a bit. Uh, so some of the stats are a bit stale, but that's Perfect. in part because we're we're moving quickly these days. Uh, so we got started back in, in, as you mentioned, in 2006. The genesis of, of Pathfinder was a, a hot tub in Big Bear, uh, and there's a, a longer story to that. But um, sitting there with my longtime friend uh, and, and then client, Mitch Siegler, and talking about where we were in the world and what was, what was happening at that time. This is December 05 or January 06. And we both realized that there was going to be a significant dislocation in the financial markets and that real estate would be you know, significantly impacted as a result. I had also seen back in my early career as a lawyer, clients who bought bundles of bad loans from the RTC uh, in the early 90s who, who, who really made lifetime fortunes by you know, buying when there was blood in the street, to, to quote uh, Sam Zell. And, and, and so that was the investment thesis. You know, we realized the dislocation was coming. We realized that there were going to be some interesting buy opportunities as a result. We had no idea how bad it was going to be, of course, and and certainly our predictions were were uh, <laughs> were for a a a bad time, but not nearly as bad as it got. But chaos creates opportunity, and and as a result, you know, we were able to jump in early, um, build relationships, and and begin buying, and that occurred in the fall of '06. We started with uh, one institutional capital partner, uh, with just uh, Mitch and I uh, as the investors, and. And, uh, and one partner bought three uh, defaulted loans on, on various uh, multifamily projects, uh, initially in Florida and Texas. And that got us started. Uh, realizing that we would quickly uh, soon uh, eviscerate uh, our remaining liquidity, uh, we decided it was prudent to raise our first fund. And that was in, uh, in uh, the summer of 2007. And again, remember at that time, you know, we were just starting to see the, the first public signs of the of the distress and how deep it might be. So we kind of sat on the money uh, for, for a little while as the deals kind of got better. Um, first, first fund was small. It was 32 friends and family members, and that's really what got us started. Um, bought a few deals and realized then we were onto something and raised a much larger fund in 2009, a couple of years later. Brought, uh, brought a couple partners on and, and, and really you know, began to hit our stride. Um, since that time, we've actually raised, we're, we're just completing the raise of our 11th fund. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, the website's uh, a little behind. <laughs> you guys are moving yeah. fast. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, uh, Pathfinder Opportunity Fund 8, uh, and I'll talk about it uh, during the conversation here, is, is a, a new fund that will hopefully take advantage of some of the distress in the marketplace coming up. Um, but we've uh, we've raised uh, now, as I mentioned, completing uh, our eleventh fund. Uh, we've bought about one hundred and thirty-five to one hundred and forty deals since since we got started, and 
And yeah, we're probably in the billion and a half uh, range right now in terms of total acquisitions. Um, so it's been an interesting journey. And as you mentioned, we've, we've, we've pivoted along the way. Um, you know, when there was distress early on, that's what we focused on. And that's pretty much all we did for about five or so years, five or six years. Uh, recognize some interesting opportunities along the way as well that were a little different than what we were doing. In 08 or 09, we started to buy single-family homes in San Diego and ended up uh, acquiring about 130, 140 single-family homes, which we kept long-term. We still own about half of that portfolio. We, uh, As opposed to flipping them, we kept them for long-term rent, and you know that's been, a, over time, a, a Grand Slam uh, winner for us. Um, we saw a unique opportunity in, in around 2014-15 to delve into the luxury space, and we backed a group up in L.A. that was uh, flipping mansions in the Hollywood Hills, and that was an interesting you know, experience. Uh, bought about 20 or so homes. Uh, still have one left in that portfolio, but we stopped buying in 2016 as we saw the market changing. And then, as you mentioned, the last few years we've spent in the value-add space, um, and uh, uh, in the major markets in the Western U.S. and uh, focused on projects that were perhaps a little too small for the, the really big guys, uh, more of the 100 to 200 unit space, and uh, have done some fairly transformative you know, value add in that space. Um, so so we've, we've been nimble, and, and now the market is you know, changing again, and we're you know, kind of right smack in the middle of that. And seeing where the opportunities may lie here over the next couple of years um, due to, you know, dislocation that's happened as a, as a, you know, direct result of, of the pandemic. And uh, we're, you know, we're just now starting to see some of the interesting real estate opportunities that may uh, come as a, as a result. Um, my personal background, as you mentioned, I, I spent 20 years as a real estate lawyer. Um, uh, I had a focus over time uh, in the apartment space and the condominium space uh, and uh, got to know a lot of the uh, players in the space on the equity side, on the debt side, on the operating side, and um, still work with a lot of those relationships uh, even today. Um, very happy to not be a, little, a lawyer anymore. I call myself a, uh, a, uh, <laughs> a partially retired lawyer. But uh, it was a great background for, you know, for, for uh, starting the company and, and uh, doing, uh, you know, doing what we do uh, today. Um, my, uh, my time is spent between uh, San Diego and, uh, and Vail, Colorado. Um, Vail's always been a, a kind of my, my happy place and, and uh, second home. I, my parents owned a place there in the uh, uh, beginning in the late 1970s and uh, for about 10 years and, uh, my uh, late wife was from Denver, and uh, our first date was actually up in Vail. So uh, it's always kind of been a special place for uh, for me, and uh, uh, fortunately, a place where I get to spend some time uh, when I'm not in San Diego. So, and one thing that COVID has shown is that uh, you can kind of work remotely anywhere, and uh, <laughs> it's it's as good to be up there as it is to be down here. And uh, I'm fortunate to be able to you know spend time in both places these days. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Uh... Well, there's been some articles in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, a few other uh, media outlets talking about the phenomena of of not boom towns, but zoom towns and uh, a bunch of people well and truly figuring out that their business actually can thrive remotely. Now, I don't know what that'll feel like 18 to 24 or 36 months out from 
right now, but boy, those, some of those mountain markets are just exploding with, uh, new transplants and, you know, real estate prices are moving quickly. Um, look, as I'd explained with you just, you know, prior to getting on the podcast with you, it's kind of free form conversation. Um, you've already brought up a bunch of places that we can go. Um, but why don't we just jump right into COVID and, and, you know, kind of, if you will, the chaos that's coming from it, <clears throat> where, I mean, I could just say it this way, where the hell are we going? Uh, this is, <laughs> this has been a, an absolute surprise for all of us. We've seen really unprecedented monetary policy as a response, um, high level of accommodation on the lenders, especially in, uh, hospitality and, and retail assets, at least for the time being, um, you know, a lot of the, the distance working taking place, but where do you guys see that um, sort of informing your worldview and, and directing you as it pertains to potential opportunities? I mean, that's a huge topic, so feel free to take it any direction you like. Sure. No, I appreciate that. Well, the one thing we, we, we know um, is is that it's it's been fairly chaotic. And um, however you thought about it in March or April, you're probably thinking about it differently today. And that's certainly the case, you know, with, uh, with us, um, we spent a significant amount of time in the early stages of this, um, just making sure that, um, you know, our company, our staff and our investors were in as safe a position as they could be both, you know, personally and, 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 and financially, um, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. None of us, you know, did. And this is, is, a is a situation without, you know, precedent in, in, um, at least in the United States, uh, in modern times. And so, you know, we spent a lot of our energy in that first 9,220 days, call it, and making sure that, um, uh, we had sufficient personal liquidity, uh, to ensure that if there was, you know, an increase in the level of the crisis that we would be able to, um, you know, manage that. Um, we did a deep dive on a property by property basis across our whole portfolio, uh, to make sure that we were, you know, okay. Um, going to be okay. We're, we're a light leverage shop. We're about 50% leveraged across the portfolio. So we weren't necessarily worried that we were going to have a problem, you know, meeting a loan payment per se. Um, but, it still required us to do a deep dive on, on each individual asset to understand how our tenant base uh, would be affected uh, by the pandemic, uh, what potential level of unemployment we would see, uh, what potential percentage of tenants might not be able to you know, pay their rent either on time or at all. And, um, and, and, and as a result, one of the things we did is we kind of stopped all, um, funding of, of, of construction projects and renovation projects just to make sure that we would be okay. Um, and that worked out, uh, fortunately for us, as I think it did throughout, you know, generally speaking, the multifamily sector and whether that's because of some of the stimulus, uh, that was provided the $600 weekly checks, um, the state checks, who, you know, who knows combination of all of the above. Um, but for you know those of us in the at least in the multifamily space, you know we've we've been able to to collect uh, very close to what we were collecting percentage wise uh, before uh, the crisis hit. 
And what's been remarkable to me is how consistent that number has been. Um, you know, our, our percentage collections in April, May, June, July, August, and September were, you know, within 1% of each other. We never had a dip below it or a, or a spike above it. And, and, and that was pretty surprising, you know, to, to, to us. So we kind of planned for the worst, but hoped for the best. And, uh, over time that's, um, that's where it, uh, played out. Um, where does it go going forward? <laughs> I think it really depends on the sector. And, hmm. you know, as you mentioned, the two that I believe have been hardest hit and will continue to be hardest hit and that's retail and hospitality. And correspondingly, you know, as a result, that's where I see, you know, opportunities, uh, uh for, for, you know, savvy opportunistic investors. And, um, I, I was listening to a, a webinar about a week or so ago, uh, and somebody, and I'm not suggesting that this, this statistic is accurate, but it, it, it was an aha moment for me. Someone said that 65% of hotels in the United States today are currently insolvent. Hmm. Think about that for a second. 65% yeah. of hotels in the United States today are functionally insolvent. Um, but you th think about it, if you look at, at, at some of the hospitality numbers, it kind of makes sense because, you know, we've gone from, you know, averages in the, you know, 70% range in terms of occupancy down to the 30% range. So you're not going to be able to make debt service payments with 30% occupancy. Um, That's right. That's right. You know, and I, I guess you can feed it, but, but you're certainly not going to do it from cash flow. And the question is how long, you know, can you feed it or will you feed it? That's right. Yeah. And I had a, uh, a guest on the show last week who's one of the bigger opportunity funds with a real interest in going into hospitality. And they're saying, you know, if we, if we just take an asset as a, as a $1 value, um, they're seeing things that are, they're not pricing anywhere near the appropriate level of discount <clears throat> because the amount of uncertainty to get from today where you know you're feeding debt service and or, you know, sort of maintenance and, and management and operating expenses to the property on a monthly basis to back to so at least a break level, uh, break even occupancy level. It, 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 nobody knows. Is that four months? Is that 14 months? Is that 20 months? Uh, and they think it's probably, you know, it's got to get to like 65 cents for, for things to be from their view, uh, attractive, but they're not seeing it right now. So, uh, it's a very interesting time in that regard. Is that an area that Procopio or sorry, I keep saying Procopio apologies, <laughs> pa Pathfinder, uh, is going to focus you guys interested in the hospitality space? Or are you looking at it as a sort of a, you know, value add rehab and, and change of use? We see it in the context of a change of use. We're, 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 you know, we're not hotel people. We've, we've, we've only bought one hotel, um, since we got started, you know, back in 06, which was a, a note purchase on a, on a newly constructed Homewood Suites. Um, and, and that's been our only hotel deal. So I, I, I think for us, you know, we, we view it in the context of conversion and adaptive reuse of hotels, potentially to rental housing. Um, and, and, uh, I think with a, with a focus in kind of the long-term state type properties, mm -hmm. uh, primarily because the physical construct of those properties lend themselves, you know, better to a potential conversion. Um, but we're only starting to see it. I, and I think that speaks to, you know, one of the other issues on, uh, specifically on timing, um, 
as, as you know, I'm, I'm a part-time banker. Um, uh, I was a co-founder of Endeavor Bank, uh, a local bank, community bank here in San Diego. We, we uh, opened our doors in January of 2018 after uh, three years in the application process uh, with the feds. We were only the fourth new bank in the United States uh, to open our doors at the time we did since the, uh, the Great Recession. And uh, I'm, I'm on the board of directors and I also chair the, the loan committee of the bank. Um, so kind of my, my, you know, my part-time job is, 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 uh, is, is as a banker. And I could tell you from uh, wearing that hat that you know, the mantra from you know, the regulators has basically been when, when the crisis hit, work with your borrowers. And it made sense. Um, you know, work with your borrowers. We don't want to have a, a complete, you know, financial collapse here. And um, the way to do it is to, uh, uh, you know, try to uh, make sure that your borrowers uh, can get through this in, in the best way possible. And I think that was a, a you know, a, a prudent policy, you know, at that time. You know, unfortunately, though, that policy can't last forever. That's right. And, and so we're, uh, you know, uh, now starting to see um, how that's going to change. Now, a lot of folks, um, a lot of small to medium-sized businesses got through the crisis with the PPP loans. Um, it ended up to be a massive boon to our bank because we were able to uh, pick up a lot of clients from some of the larger financial you know, institutions who just were not being served uh, well by them. And, 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 in fact, it's it almost you know more than doubled the size of our bank in in a, in a very short period of time, which is great. That is um, great. But uh, that kept a lot of people afloat. Um, we would have seen, I think, a dramatic collapse, financial collapse, had the PPP program not existed. Um, but that was then. <laughs> this is now. Most people uh, who were on the edge have used those PPP dollars up. And I think are you know looking for the the next rescue, and I don't know if it's coming. It may come. Um, it may come tomorrow, and it may not come, and it may come three months from now, or it may not come. No one knows, right? Because that's that's playing guessing games on politics, and that's that's a whole nother rabbit hole we probably don't want to go down. Um, so uh, it's tough to say, but I, I I can tell you at some point, uh, banks and whether that's community banks or money center banks or you know, uh, uh, non-regulated financial institutions and debt funds, at, at some point they begin to um, enforce their loans uh, mm. when they're not being paid. And uh, that time, I believe, is starting to come, you know, basically now. So I'm, I'm tracking notices of default uh, across the markets that we work in. And only in the last 30 days are, are we starting to see an uptick in NODs, uh, starting to see some bankruptcy filings. And I think it's the beginning. It's a trickle today, but I think the trickle is going to turn into a stream. I don't know if it's going to be a raging river uh, like it was in, you know, 08 and 09 and 2010. It may not be, uh, but there's there's going to be, uh, <laughs> there's going to be water. And as a result, there's going to be opportunity for, you know, opportunistic, you know, buyers like us. Um, it's different today than it was in, in, in 08, 09, 010. First of all, there's so much capital today, uh, you know, on the sidelines and, you know, absolutely better than I do, uh, you know, how, how staggering the amount of, of capital is. 
there's also, because this was not a banking crisis, unlike last time, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of liquidity at the lending level too. So it's going to be easier for, you know, for equity players to, you know, to buy, it's going to be easier to get projects financed, whatever they are, um, at, at most likely, you know, reasonable leverage. So I don't think the crisis will ultimately be nearly as deep or as pervasive as it was back in the great recession. Um, but I, I do think COVID is going to create opportunities. So that's, that's kind of on the investing side of it. There's so many other elements though, of the pandemic that, that touch, you know, real estate. And one of them is just the functionality of how we all work and live together. And, you know, uh, the big question in a lot of people's minds is in the office sector, right? Um, how and when are, are we going to get back to work sitting together in the same room? And if you would have asked me in April, I would have said, well, later in the summer, if you would ask me in the summer, I would say, well, hopefully by fall, <laughs> it's October 21st today. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe it's the spring, maybe it's next summer. I, I don't know. Um, and the more people I talk to about this subject have kind of have the same feeling. We don't know. Um, we all hope it's going to be sooner rather than later. I think a lot of us miss the camaraderie elements of, of being together in the same physical space. I think we miss some of the creative elements of uh, and collaborative elements of being in the same space. But, um, but that's, that's a big unknown today. And I think one thing, it, it feels like a little bit like 9-11, where 9-11 was, a, uh, you know, the, one, the penultimate shock to the system. And after 9-11, things changed. Uh, and in some cases, they changed for good whether that's walking through a metal detector to go into yep. a Padre game or obviously, you know, enhanced security through airports or, you know, there, there's a hundred different facets you could look to. I, I think we're going to experience a similar kind of situation post COVID where things are different. Um, over time, they'll, they'll, they'll feel more normal, but um, in, in terms of the physical work environment, I believe that some of that, over time will result in kind of a permanent difference than where we were before and how that's going to impact office. I, I, I don't yet know, except I believe that ultimately we will probably use less square footage, um, you know, as a, as a, as a business universe, we'll probably work from home more than we did before than this all hit, even, you know, post vaccine. Um, I, I, I think that's going to be a, a more permanent change. And what do you think about the the geographic uh, nature of the workforce? And, and given that you spend time in Vail, and I've been spending a lot of time up in Tahoe, um, you know these these places are are not subtly shifting. I mean, there's there's more than a handful of folks coming up from the Bay Area here uh, and looking at the home prices and saying, "Up, oh, well, hey, let's." just buy something here. We'll call this home. Cause if I don't have to be on the peninsula, I'd rather be in the mountains. And, uh, you know, I think June or July was 200% of the sales volume. Home prices are up 25% in like three months. Yeah. Um, that's one of the ones I look at and go, okay, is that a, is that a moment in time where it feels like you can advance your career and you can be a part of the company just as effectively, uh, from, from Lake Tahoe as you can from downtown San Francisco, or 
is that a long-term trend where, and I'm sure we don't have the answer, but you're up in Vail. I suspect some of the same things are unfolding there, but you know, if you, if you were to kind of think about, is this, is one of the changes from COVID going to be that some portions of teams are now just dispersed permanently? I I, I think so, Kevin. I I think that, that, um, I, I think people realized through the crisis that you don't, you know, have to be, you know, chained to the desk to be, um, uh, you call it equally as productive. Uh, and, and, and in fact, maybe you can be more productive, uh, not spending, you know, whether it's 60 minutes or 120 minutes a day, you know, commuting in your, in your car. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, that some of those, you know, changes will, will, uh, continue, uh, depending on, you know, the nature of the company. I mean, I'm talking primarily focused on the office space, not, you know, manufacturing or other things where you need, you know, hands and bodies physically in, in place, of course. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I think it, you look at apartment rents today. I was reading an article this morning on Globe Street. Uh, the, the markets with the greatest declines right now, you know, San Francisco, um, New York, uh, L.A., and Chicago. Well, there's a reason. <laughs> extraordinarily expensive cities to live and work in. And I think, you know, the effect, and, and I've seen it from, frankly, the stories from uh, my, my, my kids are 26 and, and 24. And I, and, I, and I hear it from the stories of, of, of them and their friends uh, who were living in those, you know, gateway markets and who have moved out while maintaining their same positions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I hosted a few of my son's friends here, uh, in the early fall for, for a few weeks. And they were all working in, in, you know, in downtown San Francisco paying, you know, oodles of money for rent. And they decided that, that they could, you know, they were all working in their apartments anyway. So they said, you know, why don't we just move down to San Diego for a month or two and hang out there while we're working. Um, so I, I think that newfound uh, element of mobility that really wasn't in place before. I mean, sure, some companies had a work from home policy or a part time work from home policy, but it, it it was really more the exception to the rule. And I think over time, you know, my guess is it's going to be more of the rule than the exception. Not full time per se, but but more um, enhanced flexibility, and and that's going to change things. You know, it's it's going to change, as I said, how much office space we use, how we work together. Um, and it's not without its challenges too. I'm, you know, I think about it in the, the, the context of, of culture. And this is something I've, I've been part of a CEO group for seven years now. And, and it's an ongoing discussion that we have you know, in our group is how do you preserve culture uh, in an organization when you're not physically with each other? And it, it's not just the physical element of working together. It's also the physical element, the socialization element of grabbing lunch together, getting a workout in together, going for a run together, having a, a beer or a glass of wine after work. Yeah. Building a real relationship. Exactly. And, yeah. and that's missing. And, you know, uh, I think we've, we're all trying to uh, continue to, to get that in as much as we possibly can with people, um, and learning how to do it now in the newer environment. Um, but it's, you know, it's not easy and you have to make a conscious effort to do it. So how do you do it at the company level? You know, you know we, we've had for, since this all started, 
we closed our, our physical office in, in March when, when the crisis hit and we, we haven't opened back up yet, but we do have a, you know, a weekly zoom meeting and, uh, uh, for a long time, I think, uh, four months in, you know, every week for four months in a, in a row, we, we played an interesting or creative game uh, together, really just to, to, to continue to try to, you know, build and, and keep the culture going. Um, uh, and, and now we're, we're actually hosting, uh, guest speakers, uh, who may or may not have any connection to real estate just to kind of, uh, you know, again, uh, keep people engaged and have them, you know, interested in, in, in what we're doing. Um, I try to get on the phone and actually talk to people, call people as opposed to just emailing. Um, because one thing that I've noticed since the crisis hit is my already fairly staggering volume of emails, <laughs> Yeah, which, which is kind of the bane of my existence and, and difficult to keep up with. I can't tell you whether it's gone up by 20% or 30%, but you know, it's, it's to the point where it's, uh, it's fairly mind numbing at this point. And, uh, so, you know, kind of managing that, um, and, 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 and trying to, um, you know, be in contact with people in other forms other than just email is I, I think, a you know, a key element of, of kind of trying to maintain, you know, some, some, uh, some type of cohesive culture. Yeah, totally agree. And it's ironic, uh, and well-timed that Microsoft's teams product has come out right during COVID. I don't know if you guys have started to utilize it. <clears throat> um, we're finding, you know, to your comment of increased productivity, um, you know, I don't know that I, I am more productive for taking a shower and, and putting on my business attire and driving to the office and parking and going up in the elevator and all that, or just finishing a workout, sitting down at the desk and, you know, throwing up the, the screen share with a colleague and, and going through the work uh, in, in that manner. But I, I really do think a lot of people are, well, I'll just say this, I have found myself much more productive in this setting than I ever would have anticipated. And I, I would have thought the distraction and the other things associated with being at home would outweigh the benefits, but it has, it has for sure gone the other way. So it's going to be an interesting uh, phenomena for us to all continue to live through. But if I may, what game were you guys playing in terms of the, the Zoom <laughs> so, meeting? <laughs> that's funny. Well, we, we rotated. So everyone uh, on the team had to come up with their own game. And, uh, uh, we did, uh, I think someone did a Jeopardy, uh, game. Uh, I did a, uh, uh, a treasure hunt, uh, <laughs> where I g gave people a, uh, a, a list that they didn't have before and they had to go find, you know, certain things around their house. Uh, so it, it, everyone came up with something, uh, uh, something, uh, something different, uh, that we could share through some type of, you know, zoom mechanism. So, uh, it was fun, you know, it was fun. We, 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 uh, you know, we, uh, we enjoyed it. I thought it, it continued to build a camaraderie and gave everyone, uh, you know, we could all laugh at each other, uh, which was great. Um, and, and that, that certainly helped to, uh, you know, to build culture. The other thing that, you know, has gone on is, you know, at least, well, I think not just in the multifamily world, but all aspects of commercial real estate, you know, transaction activity basically went gr grounded to a, a standstill for a period of time. And, um, across all sectors. And it's only in the last 30 to 45 days that we're now seeing a, you know, a pickup, at least in the multifamily sector. We're actually in the middle of five deals right now. And from, you know, 
March through, you know, uh, August, it was, uh, the, 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 the number was zero. So it's, it's a pretty significant, you know, change back to kind of an, a normal level of deal flow. Um, the deal flow is now re-engaging our teams, right? So yeah, everyone is, is back at it and, and working away and grinding hard and, and we've got stuff to do. Um, and to do not just in the triage mode, but to, you know, uh, make money for our investors and, 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 uh, find opportunities and, uh, sell stabilized, you know, assets. Um, uh, I find that the, the market is, is pretty interesting right now. We've, we've received more unsolicited offers on, on buildings than we ever have before ever. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, people are gearing back up again after this period and saying, you know, we are going to be okay. It's going to be bumpy and lumpy. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a new normal today, but there's a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines that needs to, needs to go find some yield. And well, and, and if I go back to your analogy on the stream, you know, the trickle, whether or not it's a, a river of distress, like it was during the great recession, uh, I couldn't help, maybe it's because my two-year-old daughter is obsessed with bears, but I couldn't help adding to that analogy that you, you got some bears on the side of the Creek eating the salmon as they go up. And in the great recession, that moment of uh, the log jam of commercial transactions was very long. I mean, it was it was probably a solid year of just nothing and nobody wanted to eat the fish and there weren't really any bears at the river trying to eat the fish. And I think you already alluded to it here. There's a ton of capital, i.e. there's a lot of bears ready to eat these fish. Um, we've, we've just been talking to a client out in Colorado, uh, $68 million dollar, uh, asset, like 220 unit apartment project, brand new construction. And they're, they've got a comp that's a 422 cap sale on 50% occupancy pro forma NOI. Uh, that, you know, it's not their asset, but it's in the same neighborhood. And I don't know, I'm curious what your view is. This is all sort of COVID uh, related as well, because of what's happened with uh, monetary policy. But you know, the, the HUD rates are on the floor, like a 2.1% base rate. Um, Fannie Freddie, if you stay, you know, low leverage and, and, and high debt coverage, uh, I think is as low as maybe 2.7, 2. maybe 2.65. Uh, that spread between the cost of debt and what have been historical cap rates, maybe we have to go back to, to January to decide what a historical cap rate is. Uh, is pretty much an all-time, you know, high that that, that the, the gap between that prevailing cap rate and the cost of debt. So, c- curious if you think that's catalytic in, you know, the unsolicited offers and and how you guys think that's going to impact multi on a go forward basis. Well, it's a great question. I, I think if rates were where they were pre-COVID, call it, you know, 100 basis points higher or more, um, we wouldn't be seeing, you know anywhere near the level of activity that we're seeing, you know, in the, in the last 60 days. Um, so yes, I, I think that's the, 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 the low fixed rate interest environment, uh, has been a catalyst, uh, for, for deals. And I agree with you. I don't think I haven't seen the spreads, uh, as high, uh, as they've been. Um, that said, that doesn't mean you can buy anything. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I think you, I think it's a good time to be really picky. Um, I think it's a good time to to stick to quality, and that doesn't mean you have to go buy 
you know, brand new building, but, but, but quality in the sense of, you know, market dynamics, physical construction, you know, the physical plant, um, you know, the submarket, all, all those things. And, uh, you know, and be picky with, with what you're, you know, you're looking at today. And because, you know, we don't know what, you know, again, what, what lies ahead. Um, it could be, it, you know, it may not be as bumpy as it was in March, April, and May, but it could be, um, you know, heaven forbid if we have additional lockdowns and, and, and what that, you know, may do to, you know, to the market and, and, and to assets. Um, we, we just closed a, a deal last week on the acquisition side um, and uh, uh, got a GSE uh, loan uh, fixed for, for 10 at uh, around 2.8 and uh, interest only for, for 10 years. I would never, ever have imagined money being that cheap. You know, right. Ever. In right. And, um, it's, it's, it's pretty astonishing, but even at higher prices, it, it's, it makes deals work. Um, and, uh, uh, not a time that I would want to be in a floater, you know? Um, I think it's a, it's a great time to, to fix, but there's another side of it too, which is that if you bought something two or three years ago, and you go, wow, maybe it's an interesting time to sell. Problem is, if you went and put seven or ten year money on it, you know your, that's right. Your prepay today is is so the large, yield maintenance. You can't you can't do the deal. It doesn't you know, you're not going to make any sense. So I think a lot of us in our business are kind of looking at it with you know out of two sides of our mouth. One side going, wow, it's 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 an incredible time to buy. Um, rates have never been this cheap. Um, if you're a uh, an experienced, you know, borrower with, with relationships, whether at the bank level, the GSC level, it's, it's, it's just a great time to borrow. Um, the problem is it's not an easy time to sell. <laughs> right. So, well, and it's also, I think to your point of, of, you know, being careful, um, or being picky and finding good sub markets and good quality, there's still some uncertainty around what collections will be. I mean, I tend to agree that you know, your early report of high nine, well, you didn't put a number to it, but I've been hearing like high nineties kind of collections across the board with a few outlier assets where the incumbent management had a poor enough tenant base in there that the things, you know, start to erode because, uh, you didn't have a good tenant base to start with, but, um, you don't know where rents are. You don't know where occupancy, there's still a, a measure of uncertainty. Maybe, maybe we can look in the rear view mirror and say, Hey, we're through it and let's, let's be full speed ahead. But I, I don't know that that's the case. And I think you could still see some state and local governmental distress. I mean, there's been no meaningful uh, reduction in force in any of those levels that I'm aware of. And and that could come because uh, it's clear that tax revenues are, are going to be way down. And, you know, I, I guess my point is I completely agree it's a good time to be picky because not all markets are going to perform the same as, as we get into the you know, the longer paragraphs of the, the COVID story. I agree. And look, we're, we're uh, look at California. In addition to those elements, we have, you know, various measures on the ballot, which, you know, could dramatically increase the cost of operating real estate. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, on, on top of everything else that we have to, you know, to deal with and, and, um, you know, across different types of, uh, of property types. 
So that that adds a whole nother level too in terms of thinking about where you want to buy, where you want to own long term. Um, and I'm I'm picking on California just because I'm you know I'm living here, but but uh, you know I'm sure there are other things in other states too that that are causing people to you know, have some some measures of of, uh, of concern on 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 that you know particular subject too. So it's it's an interesting time. It's um, it I mean you, you could. You could uh, uh, certainly uh, wouldn't be criticized if you decide to just kind of huddle in your cave and sit on the sidelines for a while. Um, I think that's what a, a lot of folks are doing. Um, I think we've we decided to take the position that you know we, we, we think there's going to be some interesting opportunities. Um, you know we've just finishing the raise of a new fund to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the opportunities will be plentiful. They're not here yet, but I think, you know, beginning sometime in, in 21, uh, we're going to see some, some really interesting, good long-term buy opportunities that we will be able to acquire for, you know, less than, uh, less than 100 cents on the dollar and finance with uh, very inexpensive debt. So, yeah, uh, that's a that, that's a good recipe for a long term buy. I agree. Um, Pathfinder has always, from the outside, uh, struck me as an organization that's very methodical about setting strategy, choosing your markets, and and using data, um, demographics, you know, income permits, employment, in particular, uh, employment to permits. I, I remember you guys speaking to that uh, ratio at some length years back. Um, how do you guys approach? You have a methodology that I've I've watched you utilize in the past that has put you on certain markets, and then you sit and wait for the opportunities that you like within those markets. How are you using that same skill set today because within the context of everything we're talking about well we we have giant dart boards set up in each of our right <laughs> perfect one of the games you guys play with your zoom yeah. meetings <laughs> and you know it happens that uh, we end up on the same city no uh, um yeah i think at, at times of distress uh data becomes even more important um and uh you know we're looking at it in the context of you know, doing fairly deep dives in, in, uh, in, you know, what, what concessions are being granted across markets. Um, uh, employment numbers are, are obviously, you know, critical. Uh, employment sectors, you know, are critical. Like you said, uh, um, you know, markets that are um, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, less broad in employment orientation. Uh, how strong, you know, is that? Uh, you know, we have bought and sold in Las Vegas before. Uh, I would not uh, touch anything in Las Vegas today. Now, that may change six months or 18 months from now. But, um, you know, notwithstanding uh, uh, growth uh, in, in other elements beyond tourism, I think a market like, like Las Vegas essentially still today is a, is a one-trick, you know, horse. And, and uh, uh, absent conventions coming back, which I don't forecast anytime soon, uh, that market uh, will will remain in in uh, in, in a troubled um, uh, position for for a very long period of time. Now you contrast that with with Phoenix. I mean, look how Phoenix has changed. 
uh, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, Phoenix was also, you know, I wouldn't say it was a one-trick pony, but, but, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the, how the population and the base has evolved, how industry has evolved, um, how you don't have the same, you know, uh, economy based solely on, you know, construction and housing, but the number of fortune 500 companies with back offices in Phoenix is astonishing. Um, so it's no surprise that, uh, of all the markets that we play in, uh, so far Phoenix has been the best. Um, in terms of its resiliency through COVID, you look at the employment numbers and the population growth and demographics and all those, all those uh, types of metrics that we look at on a regular basis. So uh, it's it's different. So we we're continuing to do a, a, a deep dive on you know on on that data um, and some of the markets that we're in were were frankly a little reluctant to play in today. Um, and and other markets we feel better about and I, I today i put colorado and arizona on that list as you know the 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 states where we're feeling you know kind of best about things um and i i definitely put nevada at the bottom in terms of how we're feeling you know on the, on the negative side in terms of how we're feeling so uh it's uh, it's evolved and i think it's a it's a constant uh you know ev- ev- evolution uh as we as we look at things have you guys been up in Reno? Have you ever done business up there? We've made offers on properties uh, there, but we have not bought anything there. Yeah, a bit of an aside, but what do you think of that market? I I, I look at it and think, well, maybe 50, 60 years behind either at Denver or Salt Lake, but kind of a similar fact pattern in terms of you know water and proximity to natural amenities. And of course, the fact that it's a 0% state income versus the you know, highest 13, uh, in the state line, that's only call it 10 miles away. It seems, uh, pretty enticing, but it's also a very small market. How, how have you guys viewed Reno? It, I think that's what's has scared us about markets like, you know, Reno and Boise, uh, in the past have been their size. Um, when things get tough, my my sense is the smaller markets get hit harder and it's harder for them to bounce back. Um, maybe that changes, you know, over time as, as places like Reno grow. And I understand and I don't disagree with your thoughts about uh, why it could grow, you know, more over, over time. Um, when I moved to Denver in 1978 um, from Canada, it was, you know, a medium-sized town, um, but so different than the city it is today 42 years later um denver has become huge it has it's 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 enormous uh the ms i don't know what the population of the msa is but um today but it, it, it's significant it's probably it's probably more than double what it was you know when i moved there in 78 so well i, I don't know the name of the hill but that classic view as you're coming you know from the mountains back into the town uh i mean you just use that and look at what that looked like 42 years ago versus now. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. it is huge. Yeah. And no, it's, it's changed dramatically. And, 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 you know, and so has San Diego. I mean, you think about what, what yeah. San Diego was. I, I moved here in 1988, 32 years ago. And, you know, it was a pretty sleepy town, you know, back then, but, you know, technology and biotechnology in particular have dramatically changed the landscape of San Diego and look how it's impacted real estate prices and, and, uh, 
it's not the bargain it was, right? I mean, in terms of buying a home or, 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 or obviously commercial properties or anything like that. So, you know, those, those, those things have changed for different reasons. You know, San Diego was kind of a quality of life play as well as a technology play. I think Denver was also dealt with issues of quality of life. And, and, uh, and, and as the employment sector kind of grew broader, it, you know, it changed things similar to the Phoenix story. Um, so I'm a little wary of, of the, the, the places that are kind of have a more uni, you know, singular focus in terms of their employment base, going back yeah. to which markets we like and we don't. I like the broader base markets, um, and I like the markets that have more tailwinds than headwinds. Um, but I'm, you know, the concerns are really on the, a lot of it on the government and regulatory level. I'm, I'm concerned about Oregon. I'm concerned about California. I think the regulatory issues on, in both states, which from a business standpoint are, are significant headwinds. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's a good time to be patient, you know, in those, uh, markets and not overly aggressive. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a bit different for, you know, for each place that we do business. In. And California in particular is always a story of kind of love hate, right? It's, it's very difficult to get things done. And that uh, persistent barrier to entry has created a lot of what you're talking about. I mean, this what I'm about to say is many years old now, but it was some number of years back. The city of Houston had the same number of building permits. This is in the SFR space that the entire state of California had. Uh, you know, if you extrapolate that across all new development projects and the difficulty with bringing new supply, yeah, the regulatory environment is difficult. But it's so hard to bring new product that a million dollar house in San Diego is kind of like the value play. And of course, that's not the case in, in Texas because you can build houses. So that love hate, uh, yeah, it just it persists, I guess. I agree. No, I, I, I agree. And, you know, we, we've we've undersupplied, at least in the San Diego market, we've certainly undersupplied housing for an extended period of time. And part of that reason goes to the regulatory environment. Now, part of it is our land constraint too, but a big part of it is the regulatory environment. The extraordinarily cost of housing to build housing here. Um, I haven't looked at these numbers in a couple of years, but I recall from looking at studies from the BIA that it was, you know, call it 65, 70K in permit fees before you swung your first hammer on a, on a single family home in San Diego. Um, you know, at, at a time when we're, uh, in desperate need of affordable housing stock. So it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, but if you own something today, you feel pretty good about it. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. So. Well, look, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Pathfinder, you know, is it a really remarkable success story? There are very few, especially relative to the not so distant past, uh, small funds and and getting that quote unquote, first time fund done is a very significant challenge. If we went on to Prequin or any of those kind of, you know, fundraising portals for institutional investors and looked at how many new funds are stood up each year and then how many actually have a successful raise and get into business. I mean, it's, it's literally all about that first fund. And once, once you can sort of establish that track record and get going, uh, you know, things can happen from there. And, and now you're on your 11th fund. So I was off a bit on the intro there, but uh, what do you attribute that to? I mean, building, building a company period, very difficult. Starting a, a de novo investment fund, um, 
it's very challenging. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate how easy it is to fold up shop and, and not s- succeed in that endeavor. So any of your thoughts around that would be welcome. It, it, and, it, and congrats it, for getting it done because well, it's very difficult. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I, I'll tell you, it, it's, it's an overnight success story. It only took 14 years. Right, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. um, but there's a lot of, of, of things that I can attribute it to. First and foremost is, is having great partners. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, I, I learned from that experience is you got to know your strengths and you got to know your weaknesses. And I had certain strengths and I had certain weaknesses. And um, I could say the same for my partner, Mitch, in terms of our, um, our, our business uh, experience. And we ultimately, you know, over time realized that um, in order to build a successful you know, company, we were going to need to bring on people who had strengths that were different than ours, um, that backfilled the areas in which we were, you know, weak or had less experience. And that was a key element um, to doing so. And, and as part of doing that, you have to learn to kind of give up certain elements of control. And I don't mean big, the big picture control, but I mean control over certain day-to-day elements that, Look, when we, the first couple of years and when, where we started, um, Mitch and I went to every meeting together. We were in every phone call together. <laughs> we used to joke on Mondays, I was the chief cook and he was the bottle washer. And on Tuesdays, we just switched our hats. Um, you know, and we did that for a couple of years because um, that's what we needed to do to start the company. Uh, it's different today. And so a, a, a big part of that success is bringing on, you know, partners and team members who have uh, different strengths uh, than your own. And ultimately that builds a, a successful foundation upon which to, you know, to grow from. Um, I'd say one of the, the best things that, that we did over time was to bring on a board. And uh, in, in my belief is that, you know, you, you can never <laughs> believe your own BS too much. And it's good to be challenged. Uh, good to be challenged in how you're thinking about things and your methodologies and your both your you know big picture uh, uh, strategies as well as your your execution. And so in 2009 we assembled a, a, a board of advisors of, of six people who brought different experiences and different successes you know into the mix and that board is, is still around today and I think, one of my greatest you know, feelings of professional accomplishment is keeping that group, um, you know, on board and, and active, and, and uh, uh, they continue to provide us with great feedback. They're not afraid to express their opinions. We're not afraid to pivot. Um, and frankly, uh, when we exit those meetings, uh, most of the time we end up going in saying, "Okay, guys, I think we're going to zig here." And then at the end of the meeting, three hours later, we're zagging um, because they've challenged us on how we're thinking about uh, a certain strategy. And it's made us pause and rethink how we approach it. Um, not all the time, but some of the time. And I think that's been, a, 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 you know, for us, a, a phenomenal uh, experience and a big part uh, uh, of our success. Um, so I, I, uh, I think that's an important thing. And, and frankly, I, I, you know, these days I, I, I also spend some time, you know, mentoring, you know, uh, younger folks. And, and that's one of the first things that I tell people is, um, you know, you got to be careful about, you know, not believing your own BS and you can be a salesperson, but 
Um, it's really good to have, you know, w- wise elders around you who can uh, provide some, some input uh, along the way if you're willing to accept it. And uh, I had, uh, I had uh, in addition to my, my dad, who uh, was a real estate lawyer turned, uh, turned investor, I had uh, three other kind of uh, senior mentors in, in my business life. And um, uh, I still uh, have dinner with one of them about every six months or so. And, uh, after every dinner, I always walk away with an aha. So, you know, even, even today, um, uh, I think it's an important thing to, you know, to, to still have. So I, I think that's a, you know, a big part of, of, of how we were able to, you know, to, uh, to grow. And then we, 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 you know, we, you have to, you know, certain formulas, tried and true formulas, um, Act for your investors like you would you would act if you were an investor. Be transparent in your communications. Uh, communicate often. Um, when the news is bad, let people know right away. Don't try to, you know, work your way around it or or not communicate about it. You just be upfront with it and deal with it. Um, uh, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Don't be a hog. Um, yep. There's, there's plenty of money to be made in, in, in the space without, you know, um, being greedy about, you know, fees or promotes or, or those kinds of things, you know, create, um, create investment vehicles where your interests are aligned with your investors, uh, not where they're against your investors. And there's simple rules, but it's shocking for me to see as, as an active investor in other deals as well, how many people don't do that in our, in our business. It's really shocking to me, actually. Yeah, well, you're talking about guiding principles, and uh, it's so critical at the end of the day. Um, that that one in particular. Tell me how you're paid. I'll tell you how you behave. Right. <laughs> it, 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 in the short term, there may be some variations around that. In the long term, everybody figures out. Well, if that's how it works, I guess I'll put my energy here. Yeah. Um, well, let's drill down. I mean, I totally understand what you're saying uh, within the context of understanding your weak spots and then building a team around those so that you can have a, a stronger you know, collective offering. But do you have specific uh, tools or mechanisms that you have used to kind of get an explicit understanding of your weak spots or your partner's weak spots? And similarly, do you have tools that have allowed you to know, hey, if I bring in you know, this, this new, uh, executive, I know categorically he's going to fill in this weak spot. I mean, is that, is that done on a kind of a gut level or do you, do you have tools that you feel are reliable to assess those things? Well, I think one of the things we started doing many years ago was, was kind of a offsite deep dive retreat, um, you know, once a year to just kind of make those assessments, you know, do we have the right people on the bus? Um, are there gaps, you know, if there are gaps, where are they, how can we fill them? And, um, so I, I, I wouldn't, it's, it's not a, uh, a unique assessment tool per se, but, but physically being (laughs) at a time when we used to be all in the office, physically taking a day away, you know, putting your laptops and cell phones away and just talking, uh, about, you know, the kind of the, the big picture stuff that doesn't get talked about as part of, you know, your regular weekly, you know, onslaught of, 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 um, 
emails and calls and deal flow. So I, I think that's, you know, important. Um, investing in your people, you know, is important. One of the things that, that I think has contributed to our long-term success is we've had very little turnover of our staff. And um, I think that speaks to the fact that people enjoy what they're doing and enjoy the atmosphere in which they are working. Um, one of the things that we did fairly early on is give folks, um, you know, an equity stake you know, in, uh, in what we're doing. And I think that's been a, uh, a very important uh, motivator uh, for keeping folks um, with our company. And uh, that was a very easy decision to make. Um, and and uh, I don't, you know, I guess, you know, some companies do that. Not all companies do it. But I think it was an important thing for us to do. And uh, I think our, our, our staff is, uh, feels very, um, you know, motivated and, and attached you know, as a, as a result of it. Well, further underpinning the, the notion of alignment, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, everyone aligned. Um, I haven't looked on the website for your board of advisors and it, it may be out of date, but, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about an advisory board, um, without giving away keys to the kingdom. I imagine you have some very capable, talented, busy individuals, uh, how do you how do you compel someone to be a part of your success without um, you know I mean in, in a public company and, and where you've got you know sort of stock option plans and you can throw uh, you know big board salaries at them and the prestige and you know some stock options and things like that I I kind I think I kind of understand the the mechanism of of putting a board together but in the context of a uh, I dare I say smaller, I don't know if that fits to you guys anymore, but uh, a private company with a, a small, closely held group of uh, owners, how how have you been successful in getting the right people to say, yeah, hey, Lauren, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm happy to support it. Well, you can't discount um, the importance of free Trader Joe's peanut butter pretzels. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I... I uh, it's it's tried and true. It's been tested now for eleven years with us, and uh, I think that's uh, the greatest investment uh, we've made from the snack department. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, joking aside, we you know we started this group in two thousand nine, and 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 uh, uh, we really didn't you know initially do anything you know for them. Um, uh, ultimately, we you know we we did provide some type of you know economic. Uh, you know, reward for, for, for their continued participation. But, um, I think, you know, people enjoyed being part of, uh, what we were doing and, and seeing us, you know, grow and the intellectual, um, element of, uh, you know, providing us with strategic guidance, uh, in an ever-changing environment. And I think that more than anything else in the fact that <clears throat> we, you know, we, we, uh, invited, uh, freewheeling discussion. We invited feedback, both positive and negative. We invited criticism of our, you know, of our strategic thought process. I think that's really what kept people along the way engaged and, um, and kept it interesting. Um, and, and that's been a big part of it. Uh, safe to say that in in the following manner, being a part of the forum, being a participant in 
the collaboration and the direction of the company was enough for them to to sign on? I think so. I, I haven't, um, you know, I, I haven't had that discussion uh, with with any of them, but uh, specifically. But um, as I said, the group has remained uh, together now since two thousand nine or so, and so that we must be doing something right. And and um, but I think that's part of it is is really keeping keeping them in, engaged and and knowing that we're going to listen to the uh, honest feedback that that they are uh, they have and will continue to provide us as as we uh, as we move along and um, I think that's that's been important and you know over time there's camaraderie that builds out of that and Absolutely. we have great camaraderie with you know with our board and not that we necessarily agree on every issue because we don't um, but that's true with my business partners too. We don't necessarily agree on every issue, but, um, but we've got great camaraderie and, you know, we've built a great team and a great culture and, you know, that, that culture, uh, leads itself to, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, a strong organization. So, well, I think action in the face of disagreement uh, and the acceptance of, uh, disagreement is a really healthy uh, mark of an organization not not that you try to get consensus just agree to disagree make a decision and move forward i agree i agree and and it, whether that's in real estate or other you know areas of business um i, I think that's uh, a good recipe for long-term success that's great so a little shift here um you've already provided a ton of insight and uh, appreciate the the candor on your daily routines, um, in my view of, of life is if I can get today, if I can really be organized and effective and, and execute on long-term goals, however that manifests today, I've got a really good chance of kind of nailing it, if you will. Uh, I'm curious for you, how do you think about personal performance and, and daily routines or practices that, that might help you excel. Well, I think there, there's pre-COVID and post-COVID, right? Right. It's for for all of us. Many of our daily routines have have shifted um, uh, a great deal. Um, you know, for for a long, long time, I was uh, very hard charging, and I would measure my um, uh, my my uh, I don't want to say happiness, but happiness or, or success on a daily basis by how productive I was. And, um, when you're in the law world, uh, it's easy to do that because you just look at the timesheet and you see how many hours you, you know, you put on the, on the sheet and you're going to be rewarded, you know, on an hourly basis for how many hours you put down. Um, so it's, it's mathematical almost, uh, it's different outside of the service business, right? Cause, uh, I could spend 20 hours, uh, at, at work and do nothing, or I could spend a very successful 20 minutes. So. I think when I when I changed gears and you know in, in 2006 and moved into the you know the the uh, the real estate uh, side of the world, my my personal philosophy changed a bit too. And and I I didn't I no longer measured my productivity based on how hard I was working, but really more about how smart I was working, and that changed things too in terms of you know daily routines. Um, uh, exercise has always been very important to me, and um, I've I've changed up how I do things over the years just because my 
soon to be 50 year, 58 year old body doesn't do things in the same way it used to. Uh, but, um, uh, spending, uh, time every day, uh, doing, uh, something, uh, hopefully both physical and outdoors is, is really important to me for my, um, my, my physical health and, and maybe even more importantly for my emotional health. And so I just make a point to, um, to do that every day. And sometimes it's not much, um, you know, uh, since COVID hit, I've actually walked more than I probably ever have my, my entire life. And so a lot of times I, 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 I live near the top of Mount Soledad in La Jolla. And a lot of times it's, it's simply a walk up and down the hills of Mount Soledad. And, um, that's, you know, a, a enough for me. That's usually actually a time when I catch up on my, my phone calls or personal calls while I'm walking. And, uh, uh, it's, it's being outside and it's being in the fresh air and, and just getting up. Uh, but that's an important part of, you know, of my, uh, my daily routine. Um, I spend probably a couple hours in the morning, um, just reading. And, uh, I, I have found that to be critically important. Um, I read from a variety of different, uh, sources. I read the wall street journal every day. Um, uh, I read a lot of, you know, industry related, uh, materials. Uh, but you know, I try to get up around six 30 in the morning and I probably spend my first two hours just reading. And, uh, I find that preps me well for the day to, to feel, you know, informed and, um, hopefully a little bit smarter about, uh, uh, things that are going to affect me during the workday. Um, so that's a important part of, uh, of my day. Relationships are really important to me. Um, they always have been, it's part of who I am. Um, but I think it's really important in, you know, in business. And as I look at things today, you know, I, a big part of our, uh, deal flow over the years is relationship oriented. And it's long-term relationships that, you know, we have had with brokers, with influencers, with, with owners, with operators. Um, you know, when COVID hit, one of the first things I did was create, uh, an email dialogue, regular email dialogue with a bunch of other uh, owners in, in the business. And I won't go into the details of, you know, who they are or anything, but, you know, we compared notes as to what everyone was doing and how they were doing it, even though we were competitors. And, you know, I just kind of put together my list and a few people dropped off the list over time because, you know, they perhaps they didn't want to share information as, as much as, as I did. But I have found that that group still a couple times a week will we continue to email each other about best practices, uh, how we're doing, how things are shifting in the marketplace. Um, so I, I can't stress enough how important how important I believe relationships are, which is why I never try to burn a bridge under any circumstance. Uh, which is why, you know, when we approach negotiations, we don't do it in the context of a win-lose, you know, type of thing, or try to get the next, the last, very last nickel out of any deal or anything like that. It's, it's all about the long-term play and, you know, creating, uh, you know, meaningful um, relationships. And, you know, some, some of the best friends that I've had in the business are those that I continue to do business with across the, the table from us. Um, so that, that's just kind of been my, you know, my philosophy on, on, uh, on how I do it. Um, I think that the challenge, and I alluded to it earlier, one of the biggest challenges for me is the flow of noise. And, yes. and, and noise in particular for, for me is, is emails. In, in 2019, I think I averaged 802 emails a day. Oh, my God. Re receiving. And um, 
it's hard to keep up. You know, it's just it's impossible. It's hard to keep up. So I've I've you know tried to create systems where you know when I need to get something done, I just shut Outlook off. Um, yes, you know, so it's not you know bugging me all the time. Um, but that's that's my biggest challenge. And and frankly, I spend some of my time on the weekends just playing my my weekly catch up. You know, Sunday yep. Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings for me are my typical catch up time where you know, I could crank through it. It used to be because I did spend a fair amount of time on the road. Um, you know, that would be my three or four hours on an airplane where I'd, I'd, I'd shut off the Wi-Fi and just, you know, kind of crank through the, you know, the emails and, and do a catch up then. But, but managing that is, is definitely challenging. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, we all are pinged with, you know, so much stuff in our inbox, whether it's, you know, text or calls or emails on, on a regular basis from so many different sources today. So, I've tried to reduce um, that on a regular basis as much as I can and realize that I don't have to read everything all the time. Um, and I can, you know, move a lot of things off my, my plate in order to be effective. And um, I'm not as effective if I'm deluged every minute, you know, with, um, with information. So um, that's, that's part of the, uh, the new normal, you know, these days. Yeah, agreed. And does Pathfinder use Slack or any other channel that's alternative to email? We don't. We've started to talk about it a bit, but uh, you know, so who knows? Maybe that, that's something uh, somewhat of an initiative for 2021. But uh, right right now, we don't. Yeah, we don't use it either. And I think part of the at least perceived value for me is, you know, every package comes in your inbox. They all look the same. It's just an email and you don't really know what's in there unless you give it a quick open and look at it. But if you had a whole separate channel where everything that came in was the Slack channel, i.e. they've got a position that merits them being able to deliver to you at any time, uh, it could, it can beat that back. We haven't done it either, but I, I feel the anxiety uh, in myself raised when you, when you start talking about it, because uh, I similarly find that time on an airplane is is oftentimes the best time of a whole week because there's nothing going on that distracts my train of thought from getting into you know more more kind of a productive mindset. So yeah, I'd I'd call it back to kind of mindfulness, you know, um, really being uh, being able to pay attention and to be mindful uh, uh, when you're in that time spot and the more distractions you have, the less mindful you are able to be. And so I'm someone who can be highly distracted. It's just the nature of how, you know, my brain works. I'm a, you know, I've always been a big fan of multitasking and that's not a bad thing, but, um, it does take away from mindfulness. And, and so, you know, part of the personal stuff that I continue to work on is being more mindful and being more in the moment on whatever I'm working in, not just on a personal level, of course, but, but in, in business as well. And, uh, that's, uh, something I, I suspect as, as I continue to, to, uh, <laughs> go through this journey that, that that's something I will continue to work on. Yeah. I think that's uh, very sage advice. So, um, I think we can move towards wrapping it up, but if you have something, uh, or, several things you might want to share with entrepreneurs who, who might be listening. Uh, maybe they're on the the precipice of starting the great journey, or maybe they're in the middle of a, a storm six years in and, um, you know, kind of ha- found, finding themselves fraught with doubt. Um, but perhaps something that you wish you would have learned sooner or, 
uh, kernel of advice that uh, you find you can come back to and and find some guidance from anything that you know you'd, you'd share with that kind of community of entrepreneurs sure no it's a great question i i, you know, I guess i have two pieces of advice one is just focus on your passions i mean you got to love what you do and, and if you do you're going to be good at it so um focus on your passions be focused and and uh i think that's that's gen- uh, you know generally speaking a good recipe for for long-term success the other thing is never be afraid to ask for help. You know, you, you know what you know, you know what you don't know. Um, but really successful people um, are good at asking for, you know, for help uh, along the way. And whether that's having an advisory board or, again, bringing, bringing on service providers or team members that are better at certain things than you are or fill certain gaps. But, um, you know... Uh, increasing your bandwidth and 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 getting uh, getting help, I think, is a very important uh, element to uh, to a successful long term play. Fantastic. Well, Lauren, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for the candor. Um, I wish you much continued success with Pathfinder Partners. I mean, you guys have been on a tear, and I suspect this next season will be uh, one where high achievements rather possible. So, best of luck to you guys. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you on the slopes. All right. Take care. See you.